0: It's good to see you this afternoon and for those joining us tomorrow, it's good to see you as well in the spirit. Um, If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to John 4, verse four. John chapter four, verse four, and I'm gonna pray and uh, ask God to help us today. There's an extra chair right here if someone needs an extra chair, It's, it's all yours. Father God, we love you. We adore you. Jesus, your name is living water. (laughs) It's what we need for our souls today and every day. And so I, I pray right now, as we come to your word, God, that you would so open our eyes, so open our hearts that we would see realities in the text of scripture that are transformative, that take who we are and make us more like Christ. And that help us understand the realities and the glories of being born of God. Of having tasted living water and now living in a way that makes much of Jesus. We ask for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Alright, so John 4 verse 4 goes like this. It says, and he, and that's Jesus, had to pass through will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So last week, if uh, you were able to watch that online or you were with us when we gathered, uh, we began a series that explores this event, this, this encounter in John 4, where Jesus meets a, a Samaritan woman at a well in Sychar, the city of Sychar. And we're calling this series, He Taught Us Love. And it refers that He there is Jesus. Jesus taught us love. Last time we gathered, we read through this entire passage um, and, and the goal of our first time in this text was to really lay a foundation. We wanted to know what the essence of this encounter is. What did it mean? Why, did this, why was this recorded in Scripture? Jesus is offering to this woman the gift of God, he says, living water. And we said last week that this living water is none other than God himself. It is the Holy Spirit who would be given to those who would believe. John uh, 7 has Jesus saying these words, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John offers us an explanation of what Jesus is saying. This Jesus said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Jesus is offering God himself to this woman. Offering the only thing that can satisfy the longing of her soul. But what makes this even more extraordinary is that he shouldn't even be talking to her. In verse 9, the woman responds to Jesus's request for a drink with a, a shocked and startled question. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? In other words, what are you doing? And John's explanation immediately after that for her question is seen when he says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In the Greek, it's way more explicit. Sunkra-am-ahi is the word in the Greek and it means literally they don't use and they don't handle the same things. They use separate things. They stay separate. They don't interact. They don't, they don't at all talk to each other or interact in any way. They are separate. There's a division between the Jews and the Samaritans. There's a deep-seated enmity that has been going on for centuries. And although both the Jews and the Samaritans share this lineage uh, in the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, contemporary Samaritans at that time by Jews, by and large, were considered unclean. And there was a number of reasons for that. Samaritans believed in the Torah, the five books of Moses. They, they believed that they were children of Joseph. The people who lived in Samaria believed that they'd come from Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, and this woman is going to make a point of that in this conversation. But in Second Kings, we can see that upon returning from exile, the people who dwelt in Samaria had intermarried with foreign nations and they had embraced the false gods of those nations and the result was that they denied much of the Jewish faith. Uh, We even see in John 8 that it was such hostility between them that in John 8, uh, the the Jews used the word Samaritan as a pejorative. They use it as a curse word. They say, Jesus has a demon and is a Samaritan. That's how the Jews felt about Samaritans. And in modern terms, we would, of course, call that reality racism. When John says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, he's saying that there is a pervasive division. There is a hostility between these two ethnic groups. In other words, Jesus should not be here in John 4, talking to this woman, and he certainly should not be, if he was following the cultural norms, asking for a drink of water, And yet, he does. And that's not just because he's thirsty. (laughs) He is doing this intentionally. He is, in this interaction with the woman of Samaria, teaching us love. It's the first way that he interacts with us. It's the first way that he shows us what love is in the chapter, uh, in John 4. And he does it with this issue of, of ethnic and racial prejudice. Jesus is not neutral when it comes to racism. Jesus isn't neutral when it comes to discrimination. He, he is not indifferent to this issue. To Jesus, racial prejudice is an abomination. And he wants us in this text to feel the same way. He wants us to despise it and not be happy with it, not be content with it. And so beginning the beginning of John 4 shows this profound, a reality of us being called to love people, especially knowing this world is filled with all sorts of different people who look different, talk different, act different. We need to love people who do not look like us. And it shows us how we should engage the issue of racism. He does that first here, like I said, by by asking this woman for water. In verse seven, it says, "A, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So think about this for a moment. To give Jesus a drink in this context would require her to ignore a cultural and racial barrier that has been running for centuries. We already mentioned Jews and Samaritans at this time did not interact, they did not mix. That's what Jesus is inviting her to do. He didn't need to ask for a drink. Think about that for a moment. He could have simply, we know he's going to get to the living water. We know he's going to preach the gospel to her. He could have simply done that right here at the beginning, but he doesn't. The first thing he does is violate the barrier of prejudice that exists between them. So he's not just addressing this woman. He is engaging the division that exists between their people groups. He is openly defying this ethnic division, this barrier in a way that makes his view of it very clear. And she, of course, is taken aback by this and effectively says to him, hey, what are you doing? Why are you asking for a drink of water from me? But listen to the way that Jesus responds to this woman. It's amazing. He, He basically says to her, listen, if you knew the gift of God and you knew who it is that is offering it to you, you knew who I really am, you would have been the one to ask me for a drink. And what that means is that who he is, who Jesus is, and what he offers is of such extraordinary value that, they, that it literally obliterates, overwrites, completely throws down all racial and ethnic barriers. In other words, she would not care if she knew who he was. If she knew what the living water was, she would not care. She would have asked him herself and defied the cultural norm. And that's why he asked this question. Jesus in John 4 is not playing games. By asking for this drink, he's taking taking a sledgehammer to the wall that exists between Jews and Samaritans. And he's inviting this woman, and he's inviting really all of us who are receiving this text— 2000 years later to join him in doing that this is why he asked for a drink and this is why he tells her that she would have asked him for a drink if she really knew who he was the worth of jesus christ and the worth of this living water is that great it is of that magnitude that it would have defied this racial and cultural barrier but this woman is still blind She cannot see exactly what he's saying and she is still in some way holding on to her own racial prejudice, which we see in verse 11 when she says, "'Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well, he gave us the well, the Samaritans, and he drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. The translation of this is really simple. She's she's saying, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Jacob the patriarch, the very one from whom the people of Israel are named, he is the one who gave us this well. He gave the Samaritans this well. Are you greater than him? And Jesus' answer to that question is, yes. I am greater than him. I am absolutely greater than Jacob in every conceivable way because the water that that this well here gives you cannot quench your deepest thirst. Only I can do that. And therefore, Jesus is greater than Jacob. And in handling the conversation this way, Jesus is making something very clear. He, he, he's, he's, he's making it clear that this isn't intended to be an isolated event. This isn't just about this woman and her story, as big of a of a deal as this encounter is for her. It isn't just about her. Jesus is doing something far deeper, far greater than any single person. And then even any single people group in the world. He is in this scene locking horns with racism. And he's saying, it's over. I I do not tolerate this. I'm the king. I do not allow this or tolerate this in any shape and form. And he is, he's not just redeeming individual people for the kingdom, but he's bringing the kingdom into our broken world. And he's inviting everyone who belongs to him, everyone who's been born of God, everyone who's tasted living, living, water. He is inviting all of us to join him in fighting and opposing racism. And think about how Jesus handles this conversation. Just think about it holistically. Instead of just telling the woman about the gospel, which he could have done, that's good, that's right, and that's the most important thing, and he's going to do that. But instead of doing that, at the start, he draws out this racial barrier between them by asking for a drink of water. He didn't need to do that he draws out this barrier and then he straight up decimates it right in front of her telling her listen if you knew who i was you would have done this you would ask me for water you would not have cared in the world at all that i'm a jew and you're a samaritan you would have just asked me if you knew how glorious and worthy i am and what the living water is and that's how vital this living water is it defies All racial prejudice, when Jesus says, you would have asked me in verse 10, what he's saying is it does not belong to any one people group, it belongs to all people. It is offered to every single ethnic group in the world. And this is extremely clear when we make our way throughout the New Testament. It's vividly clear, in fact, Matthew 28, Jesus' final words to his disciples were, go into all the nations, all the nations. The word nations in the Greek is ethnos. He means all people groups. And, and when the church finally does break out of Jerusalem, this is precisely what happens. It explodes outward into the world and goes to the ends of the earth. The living water which Jesus offers this, this, uh, this Samaritan woman is a living water that all people, no matter of their ethnic origin or culture, are invited to drink from, which means the very existence of the church stands in the face of all racial division and discrimination. And yet tragically, despite this fact, this biblical reality, this truth has not always been present in the church, especially in our own country, Uh, whether due to indifference or complicity or even just outright racism and prejudice, um, this reality, this, 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 this biblical truth has been untrue. And of course, I'm talking about slavery, segregation, discrimination that has gone on for the running centuries. And much of it was justified and perpetuated by the church. The church didn't just turn a blind eye to it. They fought for it to our shame. And while massive strides have been uh, no doubt made in our country, we, we still see the effects of racism. We still see the effects of division. We still see apathy in many of our churches, apathy and indifference to this reality, which is precisely the opposite of what Jesus is doing in John 4. It could not be further from what Jesus is doing in John 4. Jesus here is undermining the sinful hostility that exists between people groups. He is not apathetic to this, he is not indifferent to this, and he is calling us in this text to, to not be either. In John 4, Jesus provides us with a model for how you and I should live in this world, a world that is filled with with ethnic diversity and how we should engage racial division and we need to follow him. He goes right into Samaria, not just to encounter a single broken woman. He goes there recognizing that this is not his own people. He goes there with the, the, the desire to subvert the hostility that has divided their two people groups for centuries. And he's telling us, this is how you look like me. This is how you follow me. This is how you love. But before we get into what that actually looks like, before we, 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 we see how he handles this in John 4, I wanna just show you the reason why this is not a secondary issue. I think it's easy for us to see this as a simply horizontal issue where we respect somebody else and they respect us. And this is not that. It is that, but it's not just that. It is of immense, eternal importance because it is rooted in the purposes of the living God. Our world is filled to the rim, to the brim, and to the rim. With a vast array of people, groups, cultures and languages, and that is not an accident. That didn't just happen. Paul in Acts 17:26 says that God made from God made from one man, every nation, ethnos, of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having this is God again, determined. Allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God did that. That was God's doing. We did not do that. God made from one man every nation and determined periods and boundaries. And what this means is that there is a divine reason for our world having people of different colors, cultures, languages. That is not an accident. God is intentionally designing that and a purpose is behind that, a divine purpose. And we see this purpose throughout the New Testament. One area where I see it most clearly is in the book of Colossians, this amazing passage from Colossians 3. So if you wanna flip over to Colossians 3 real quick, we went through the book, Colossians, a few years back and I failed (laughs) to cover something that is so critical with one specific word in the Greek that that I just didn't see a connection for. And so I'm going to do that today. (laughs) Uh, Paul, in the book of Colossians, is writing a church in Colossae that is filled with diversity. As far as we can tell, it's much like our own country. Different people groups, a melting pot of sorts. And as he engages them, he reveals God's purpose for ethnic diversity on our planet. He reveals the reason, ultimately, that there are almost innumerable, seemingly, people groups that populate our world. And it's here that we see also what it is that drives and fuels Jesus to do what he does in the beginning of John 4. We see the reason that he takes this so seriously. And so let's turn there. Colossians 3, we're gonna start with verse 11. Paul says here, here, that is in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But, Paul says, Christ is all and in all. He continues by saying, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and it if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So Paul it's really clear from verse eleven that he is speaking to a seemingly very diverse church, mentioned Scythians, Barbarians, these are different people groups, Jews, Gentiles, And he's explaining why it is that diversity matters in the body. What's at the bottom of all ethnic diversity? What's the purpose behind it? He says in verse 11, when you become a a Christian and you are joined to Christ, you put on the new man, you put on Christ. The main thing about you is not your ethnicity. It's not your culture. It's not your heritage. It's not your preferences. The main thing about you when you put on Jesus is Jesus. That's the main reality about a Christian But that doesn't mean that your ethnic distinctions go away, and it doesn't mean that they should be ignored. Paul says here, Christ is all and in all, which means your ethnic distinctions, what makes you unique on this planet, belong to Jesus. He is in all and he is all. They serve the purpose of glorifying Christ and that is by design. They were made by God according to Acts 17 and they are glorified in Jesus Christ according to Colossians 3. The way we look, the way we speak, how we, our, our cultural history, all of that is not meaningless because it ultimately points to Jesus. It is used to serve his glory. And in Revelation 5:9 we see this with vivid clarity. Revelation 5.9 says, it's a song, and it says that by his own blood, Christ Jesus, listen, ransomed people for God from every, every tribe and language and people and nation, ethnos, and he made them a kingdom. That's the church. That's the body of Christ. The church at the end of the age will be comprised of every single ethnic group to have ever existed. And that's what Revelation 5 is saying. That all people groups will be redeemed by the blood of Christ. And this is what Paul means when he says Christ is all and in all. Such that without one of these groups represented on that final day in glory, the church would be incomplete without one. Every single one must be brought in. Jesus says in John 10, I have sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in. I must bring them in. Everyone must be redeemed by his blood for the glory of his name. That's why this is not trivial. That's why John 4 is not a trivial subject. This is something the church needs to get right and pursue. Not only because human beings are made in the image of God, they are made in the image of God and that should be sufficient to fuel and drive 10,000 years of fighting against racial division and prejudice. But that's not the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason is diversity exists to display the beauty of Christ Jesus, whose blood was sufficient enough to ransom every single people group across history no matter their sins no matter their blindness no matter what as long as they have faith in Christ Jesus they are his they belong to him and this is why Paul doesn't stop there when he says Christ is all and in all Paul continues and he says in Colossians three twelve, put on then in other words in view of all that I've just told you about your ethnic diversity in view of that all of that reality, put on then, you must live with these things, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. When Paul is thinking about diversity within the church, these attributes are what must drive all of their thinking, all of our thinking, all of our speaking. And he knows that that's hard. He knows that it's going to be difficult to do that. So he continues by saying, we must bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So Paul, in this, speaking into this multi-ethnic context of Colossians, envisions a kind of behavior, a kind of attitude that embraces these realities. Kindness, compassion, forgiveness. Notice how he's, I don't know how he did it. It's a miracle. He's completely left politics out of his statement here. He's completely, he doesn't list any statistics. He doesn't uh, mention any secular theories or agendas. He simply tells us to love each other and forgive each other. And then he finishes in verse 14 by saying, Above all these, above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He's telling us, Love your neighbor. He's saying, Love your neighbor. And so, just, I I want, I want, this is what I, when I came to this point in writing this sermon, what I did was I did some self introspection. And I asked myself, Has that commandment, love your neighbor, it has compassion? It has kindness it has a desire for reconciliation and forgiveness has that defined the last six months worth of my interactions and thinking that i've had on the subject of racism has love for my neighbor been the driving reality in my heart in those interactions or has it been a rationalization of things or uh, trying to process it in a cold callous sort of way? Has it been politics? Has it been a desire to, to forward a, a, a political agenda or, or some kind of, of idea, worldview I have, rather than forwarding and advancing the love of Jesus Christ? And, and I want to be clear, I'm not speaking to one specific side of this issue. I'm speaking to both conservatives, liberals, any other political ideology out there. It is, to me, the most heartbreaking tragedy that Christians who claim to belong to Jesus look so different from the one that we see in John 4. And so the question for me, and really the question I'd like to invite you all into, is what are we to do? How are we to move forward? Well, I have three things here that I would exhort the church, I would exhort myself to live out and to be And really all Christians in this season and every season to come, and they're precisely what Jesus does in John 4. I want to follow in his footsteps. I want to do what he does. And the first of these three is to go to Samaria. Go to Samaria. John 4, 4 says Jesus had to go to Samaria. Said last week that that is a divine mandate. He knows he has to go there. There's a reason for that. He had to go to a place where Jews were the minority and were outsiders. And we find out later in the chapter, he ends up spending two full days there with these people. He saw value, Christ, in spending time with people who were not like him. And, you know, that's really a lot like the gospel, isn't it? Think about this. The only way God the Son, who is completely different from us in almost every conceivable way, could come and love us as he had to go into our world live among us be with us and build relationship with us we live in a country that is by God's grace, filled to the brim with ethnic diversity. And so we have plenty of opportunities, plenty of opportunities to go to Samaria and to share our lives with Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, who look different from us, who come from different backgrounds, who have different cultures, different perspectives on the world than us. And when we do that, we are embracing the reality that Christ is in fact all, and he is in in fact all. This can't be overstated. If the words of Revelation 5 mean anything to us, they must certainly mean that eternity is going to look a lot like that. It's going to look a lot like that. People who do not look like each other, who do not talk like each other, worshiping Christ together in harmony. And one of the main points of John 4 is that this isn't just something that is going to be for us in the distant future. This is a reality that we are called as Christians to bring into the world today. It matters to Jesus that this happens. These relationships happen. The second thing is that, that's the first thing. So go to Samaria. Be with people who are Christians who don't look like you, don't sound like you. Second thing is listen, listen compassionately. Listen compassionately. Every conversation you and i have on the subject of racism or, or ethnic div- diversity or any any of these surrounding orbiting issues is not necessarily an opportunity to advance our own opinion on it believe it or not no matter where we may live on the issue we are not always called to give our thoughts on this sometimes we are just called to listen and to hear Notice Jesus in John 4 is certainly going to make his way to the living water. This is the greatest need that this woman has. But notice how this this encounter isn't a monologue. It could have been a monologue. He could have just started talking and stopped talking and then said, peace out. But he doesn't. It is a dialogue. It's a conversation conversation even though Jesus is completely in the right, he's not clouded by sin, he's not clouded by his own prejudices, he is 100% in the right. He makes this a conversation. So how can you and I, who are broken sinners with worldviews that are warped by that same sin, no matter how biblical they may seem to us, how can we treat this issue any differently? We must be able to compassionately listen. Listen. And in Colossians 3, Paul is anticipating us listening to each other because he says there needs to be room for complaints. There needs to be room for forgiveness. And ultimately, there needs to be room for reconciliation. And that brings us to the third and final exhortation I would give you and give myself today. And that's this, above all, put on love. Above all, put on love on love this woman was wrong on many levels in her heart her expectations about jesus and and if you read the, the conversation you can see she's resistant at nearly every single point but that never stops jesus from loving her not once does he stop loving her and love needs to dominate our thoughts and our words on this issue that does not mean and i want to say this very clearly. That does not mean we do not embrace the truth. We don't check the truth at the door and we don't adopt a a secular view of justice. What this simply means is this, we love our neighbor. Jesus loved this woman enough to lean into her objections and her doubt, and we need to love other people just like that. We need to lay down our lives. And this is the call of, of Christ on our lives. It's a call of discipleship. We need to lay down our lives, our preferences, our cultural instincts, what makes us comfort comfortable, and we need to love. We need to see that just as 5 or Revelation 5 says, every single people group exists for the glory of Christ, how you and I interact with them matters eternally because Christ ransomed them with his own blood. Jesus laid down his own life in love for this woman and for all who would believe. It wasn't just for her. This conversation in John 4, I just want to make sure you know this, it's not just for her. It's for us to walk in and to live in Our lives must be marked by this same sacrificial love. There is not, and this needs to be abundantly clear today, there is not a division that exists in our world between any two people that is greater than the division that existed between us and Jesus Christ. And yet he crossed it. came into our world. He lived with us. He ate with us. He cared for us. He wept for us. And then he died for us. That's what John 4 is telling us to do. John 4 is, is, is telling us, if Christ did this for you, if he was willing to do this for you, how much more should you lay aside your preferences, your desires, what makes you comfortable to show that Christ is in fact all, and he is in all. So in the next few moments, we're gonna prepare for worship. And one of the ways we do that is through the Lord's Supper. And there's individual communion cups on the tables back there. Um, as we start singing, you feel free to go back there and grab one if you haven't already. During this next song, I, I just want you to really open your heart to God and the Holy Spirit regarding this specific issue, how, it's intera- how, you, how you've interacted with it, how you've, you've felt this issue touch your life personally. And I would just ask you that you plead with God as you partake in the elements, as you worship, as you spend the rest of this week, really, to grant you eyes to see areas where you can can live out John 4 in your life, in your context, or even out of your context by going to Samaria. Ask God, how can I set my preferences aside and love others the way Jesus loved me? Let's pray. Jesus, you are so precious to us. We do not deserve the love you show us. We do not deserve the grace and mercy that you've given us. But oh, how you love us. Crossing an infinite divide, penetrating our world and coming to dwell with us and be with us, how much more should we feel compelled to do that with the people of this world and to see every human being on this planet, no matter what they look like, no matter what they sound like, no matter who they are, as someone God made for the glory of Jesus Christ, as someone, if they have faith, who will be put on display one day at the end of the age, as a vessel of mercy to glorify and exalt Christ Jesus. Father, may we see this world in the, the glorious tapestry of ethnic diversity that you've woven throughout human history. May we see that, Father, as not only belonging by, to you, but as being necessary for our church, our body locally and abroad to display the worth and glory, the love and peace and unity that are only found in Christ Jesus. Father, may we be that kind of church. May we be that kind of people, I ask. In the name of Jesus, amen.